Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 3 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The first stage of the Hundred Years' War, 1337 to 1349, from the outbreak of the war to the Black Death. In the autumn of 1337, the long bickering between England and France, which had hitherto been confined to piratical incursions and unauthorized raids, ended in open war. The Earl of Derby, son of Henry, Earl of Lancaster was sent over to Flanders to raise the king's Netherlandish allies. He came ashore on the island of Caussant, where he found the troops of the Flemish count prepared to oppose him, though the majority of the people of the land welcomed the advent of the invaders. Darby beat off the count's men-at-arms with ease, for they could make no head against the English archers. They fled in all directions, leaving their leader, Guy, the Count's bastard brother, a prisoner in the Earl's hands, October 1337. Edward himself was not able to follow so soon as he had hoped, for he found himself unable easily to collect the money needed for raising a large army. Parliament granted him the means of procuring a great sum by the expedient of permitting him to buy 20,000 sacks of wool at three pounds a sack from the wool growers, and to sell it abroad at the best profit that he could make, while other exporters of the commodity, if natives, were to be taxed forty shillings a sack, and if foreigners, sixty shillings. In addition, the barons and knights gave him a tax of a fifteenth, and the town and clergy one of a tenth on their property. These liberal votes were to prove quite insufficient for the king's thriftless hand. Edward sailed in July 1338 from Orwell with 1,600 men-at-arms and 10,000 archers, but their maintenance was only a small part of his expenses. He took into his pay all the princes of the Netherlands, who were far more anxious to get the English money than to set their troops in the field. He also went to Koblenz and wasted vast sums in a magnificent conference with the emperor, Louis the Bavarian, who granted him in return for cash the empty title of Vicar General of the Empire for the parts west of the Rhine. Edward soon found that this dignity gave him no more power than he had before, and he had the greatest difficulty in inducing the Duke of Brabant and his other allies to join him with their vassals. He could not get them mustered till the spring of the following year. Meanwhile, he with his court and his army lay at Antwerp, spending much money to no profit. 
the king's enforced idleness seemed all the more exasperating when news came that king philip had gathered a great fleet of norman and picard ships strengthened by a squadron hired from the genoese and had sent them forth to ravage the south coast of england they landed at southampton on a sunday when all the people were at mass and sacked and burned the place next they passed on to portsmouth and did the like with it and the neighbouring villages then they returned to france with their plunder quite unmolested this expedition deserves memory for the fact that the french fleet carried the first cannon which the english had ever seen they were little pieces described as iron pots throwing iron bolts by the force of gunpowder and did nothing effective but their appearance marks the first beginnings of a new stage in the art of war late autumn thirteen thirty eight in the following summer king edward at last got his refractory allies together and marched into france with an army which is said to have amounted to nearly one hundred thousand men but this great host effected nothing they laid siege to cambrai but failed to take it and then marched through the cambrai and vermandois ravaging the land king philip came out against them with an army as large as their own but he acted most cautiously posting himself behind woods and marshes where he could not easily be assailed it was to no purpose that edward drew up his army and offered battle more than once the french would not leave their position and could not be attacked in it at last when his provisions were exhausted and his foreign allies began to steal home edward was forced to retire ingloriously into brabant having accomplished absolutely nothing by his mighty display of force meanwhile all the parliamentary grants were spent and the king found himself in dire poverty he wrote urgently to ask for more money for he was already thirty thousand pounds in debt though he had had the handling of three hundred thousand pounds a sum which seemed almost incredible to the men of the fourteenth century he had even pawned the crown of state to the archbishop of trier for sixty thousand florins he was forced to come home to raise more funds in the spring of thirteen forty and obtained the very liberal grant from parliament of the ninth lamb the ninth fleece and the ninth sheaf for the two years next to come but this was not conceded to him without conditions he was made to swear to redress many grievances such as the extortions of his sheriffs and purveyors moreover he was made to promise never again to raise a tallage that is an arbitrary tax on the towns and manors which lay in the royal demesne having once more some money in his purse edward resolved to set out again for flanders but he received news which turned out to be quite correct that the french fleet which had ravaged the south coast in the previous year was again at sea and intended to intercept his passage it was necessary at all costs to gain command of the narrow seas and all the ports of england were ordered to equip vessels and send them to the harbour of orwell in suffolk from which the king was to sail on june twenty second thirteen forty nearly two hundred ships small and great weighed anchor for flanders 
the French were not met on the open water, but when the Flemish coast drew near it was seen that a perfect forest of masts lay in the port of Schlausch. The enemy was waiting there with a fleet about the same in number as that of King Edward. It was said there were 190 sail, but 19 of them were so great that the like of them had never before been seen. These appear to have been the Genoese vessels, which were true ships of war, and not mere armed merchantmen like the rest of the two fleets. The enemy was moored in three lines, with ship laid close to ship, and barricades built across them, so that it was impossible to force a passage between them. But Edward, by feigning to fly, induced them to cast off and pursue him. He then turned and plunged in among the hostile ships. The battle was a confused medley without any manoeuvring, for the fleets lay wedged together broadside to broadside, and most of the work was done by boarding. The English archers gradually shot down the hostile crossbowmen, who could not stand firm against them for long. Then the knights clambered from ship to ship and swept the decks of the enemy. Edward himself was in the thickest of the fight, and won the admiration of all men for his audacious courage. By the afternoon the French fleet was completely crushed, two-thirds of the ships were captured, and more than twenty thousand men were drowned or slain. This great fight, the second naval victory in the English annals, put an end to any attempt of the French to dispute the dominion of the seas. For the rest of the war the English went where they would, and always made the sea their base of attack. 24th of June, 1340 but splendid as was the victory of Schlausch, it had but a negative effect on the general fortune of the war. It prevented any chance of the invasion of England by the French, but it did not give King Edward any help in prosecuting his plans for overrunning northern France at the head of his Netherlandish allies. Soon after his arrival in Flanders, he mustered them and led them to besiege Tournay. July 1340. But he found himself as wholly unable to take the place as he had been to reduce Cambrai in his last expedition. After lying before it for two months, he found that his cash was all spent and that his allies were melting away from him. Meanwhile, King Philip had appeared at the head of a large army and was watching the leaguer from a distance, though he utterly refused to offer any opportunity for a battle. Edward found that he could do nothing. The rains of autumn were beginning, no more money came in from England, and vexatious news had arrived that the French were winning castle after castle on the borders of Aquitaine, and that the Scots had once more driven out Edward Balliol and sent their plundering bands across the Tweed. Depressed in spirits and conscious of his helplessness, the king stooped to propose a truce to his enemy. Philip who had secret intelligence that Tournay was suffering terribly from famine and might surrender at any moment, gladly listened to the offer, and an armistice to last for nine months and to extend to Scotland and Aquitaine was signed, September 1340. Edward promptly disbanded his army and returned to England in great wrath, blaming everyone rather than himself for the failure of his campaign. 
the moment that he reached london the king gave vent to his wrath by the wholesale dismissal or arrest of his ministers whom he unjustly accused of having wrecked his plan of campaign by embezzling or dissipating the money which parliament had voted him he deprived his chancellor robert stratford bishop of chichester of the seals put the treasurer northborough bishop of lichfield in custody and imprisoned stoner the chief justice with some of his colleagues the chief clerk of the chancery the mayor of london and many more but archbishop stratford the chancellor's brother bore the brunt of his wrath having been practically acting as prime minister for some years he was the person on whom edward laid most of the blame it was attempted to bring him to trial for maladministration but he claimed the right to be judged only by his peers the barons and bishops of the house of lords stratford met with general support and edward was compelled to yield when a committee of the lords reported in favour of the archbishop's contention and laid down the doctrine that peers cannot be arrested judged or outlawed save in full parliament before their peers the king's wrath soon burned out and he acknowledged himself to be in the wrong by reconciling himself to stratford releasing his prisoners and humbly suing parliament for fresh supplies these were only granted him after he had conceded three very important constitutional privileges the first was that he should recognize the right of the peers which had just been asserted by the archbishop the second that his ministers should in future be appointed in parliament and sworn to obey all the laws of the realm and the third that parliament should appoint commissioners to audit all the accounts of money voted for the king's service thus the lords and commons obtained two most important methods of checking the king's rash actions they were to have a hand in the appointing of his ministers and in the auditing of his revenues may thirteen forty one but edward had the shameful duplicity to make a private protest that he did not hold himself bound by his word and some months later openly declared that he had dissembled as he was justified in doing in allowing the pretended statute to be sealed for that time for all acts done in prejudice of his royal prerogative were null and void october thirteen forty one for two years after this scandalous trick edward did not dare to call a parliament meanwhile the war languished mainly for want of money but also because the emperor lewis and most of the other useless allies of england dropped away and made separate truces with france on the scottish border things went from bad to worse stirling and edinburgh fell into the hands of the patriots in thirteen forty one and balliol's hold on his uneasy throne was so completely lost that he had to take up his permanent residence in england it would now have been best to make peace with both france and scotland and acknowledge that the war was a failure but edward's energies were not yet exhausted and he was just about to be presented with a new opportunity of vexing king philip a bitter war of succession broke out in brittany the second most important fief of the french crown its cause had some similarity to the dispute which was already raging between philip and edward for the crown of france when duke john the third died in thirteen forty one the duchy was claimed both by his eldest brother's daughter 
Jeanne, Countess of Blois, as nearest of kin, and by his younger brother, John of Montfort, as nearest heir male. There was some irony in the fact that King Philip, whose crown had come to him as heir male of Charles IV, supported the Countess of Blois, while Edward, whose French claim rested on the theory that rights could be transmitted by a female, became the advocate of Montfort, who was urging the doctrine of the Salic law. Footnote. The Breton Succession. Arthur ruled from 1305 to 1312. His son was John III, who ruled from 1312 to 1341. His second son was Guy of Pontievre, who had a daughter, Jeanne, who married Charles, Count of Blois. This was the claimant from 1341 to 1364, who was slain at Auray in 1364. The third son of Arthur was John of Montfort, who married Jeanne of Nevers. He was the claimant for 1341 to 1345, and his son, John IV, was the claimant from 1345 to 1364, and the Duke from 1364 to 1399. End footnote. At first, the party of the Countess had the best of the Civil War in Brittany. Aided by French troops, they took Nantes, the capital of the duchy, and made prisoner John of Montfort, who had shut himself up within its walls. But the courageous Jeanne de Nevers, Montfort's wife, maintained the cause of her captive spouse, and held out in the strong castle of Ennebo until she was relieved by the arrival of English troops under Sir Walter Mani, a great mercenary captain from Hainaut, who was one of the most trusted officers of King Edward. Shortly afterwards, the king himself arrived with a considerable army and cleared western Brittany of the French and the partisans of Blois. But he failed to take Nantes and Rennes, and all the eastern parts of the duchy remained in the hands of the enemy, 1342. The campaign had been a success for neither party and was ended by a truce which might have turned into a peace but for the inveterate personal hostility between Philip and Edward, January 1343. It was difficult, too, to come to a satisfactory conclusion about the Breton matter, as neither claimant had got possession of the whole duchy. Philip, contrary to his agreement, kept Montfort in prison till he escaped in 1345 and got back to Ennebeau. But the truce lasted for three years, though border fighting never wholly ceased either in Brittany or in Aquitaine. In 1343, Edward had again called a parliament, which confirmed the truce and advised him to make a peace also if good terms could be obtained, or if not, to make open war. But the unsatisfactory suspension of hostilities was all that could be gained. Meanwhile, the National Council engaged in a sharp dispute with the Pope, a matter in which they had for once their master's full sympathy. The Pope was now dwelling at Avignon, whither Clement V had migrated in 1310, and was wholly under the influence and domination of the French king. The main subject of grievance against him was his inordinate greed in appointing provisors to English sees and benefices. He kept nominating foreigners to rich preferments whenever they fell vacant, 
in utter disregard of the rights of the king and other patrons. The clerics so named drew their revenues, but seldom or never came near their cures to the great injury of the church. As the English complaint ran, Clement VI appointed foreigners, most of them scandalous persons who do not reside on their benefices nor know the faces of the flocks entrusted to them, who do not understand their speech, but neglecting the cure of souls, seek as hirelings only temporal lucre. The successor of the apostles was surely appointed to feed, not to shear the Lord's sheep. The king had the full approval of the nation when, in 1344, he issued a mandate forbidding any person to bring papal bulls or any such documents into England except by his leave. This was a reassertion of an old prohibition, as long ago as the 11th century, William the Conqueror had published a similar edict, but now it needed to be once more clearly set forth. It was not, however, till 1352 that Parliament passed the Statute of Provisors, which rendered liable to arrest and imprisonment all clerics who endeavoured to make use of papal documents contrary to the interest of the king and the realm. By the end of 1345 it was quite clear that no permanent peace with France could be procured, and the king resolved to recommence the series of invasions which had hitherto been so fruitless. This time he did not make the Netherlands his base, his allies in that direction had proved faithless, and his chief supporter, Jacob van Artevelde, had lately been murdered in a riot. Though the Flemish towns still continued attached to England, nearly all the neighbouring states had made agreements with King Philip. Nor was Brittany chosen as the starting point of the attack. Edward had determined to aim at the heart of France, by landing in Normandy and striking at Paris. He sent Henry of Lancaster, Earl of Derby, with a small army to defend Aquitaine, but retained the main force for his command. Darby, it may be mentioned, proved as good a soldier in Guienne as he had already shown himself at the Battle of Cassante, and gave the enemy a sound beating at Auberoche, October 23, 1345. He drew down to the south a great French army under Philip's son, John, which was still engaged in operations on the Garonne when Edward made his great assault on the lands around the Seine. On July 11, 1346, the king landed at Cap Laogue with an army entirely composed of native English and therefore much smaller than the host of confederates which had taken the field in Flanders in 1338 and 1341. It included about 4,000 men-at-arms, 12,000 English archers, 6,000 Welsh light troops, and also a small contingent of Irish. The landing in Normandy was quite unexpected. Edward had concealed his purpose, and everyone had thought that the army was intended to aid the Earl of Derby in Guienne. The French were wholly unprepared for an assault in this quarter, and Edward was able to march through Normandy for many days without meeting with much opposition. He ravaged the countryside and took several open towns, Barfleur, Valogne, Carentin, Saint-Lô, one after the other. At Caen, he first met with a hostile force, but easily routed the Norman militia and took prisoner their leaders, the counts of Tancarville and Eu, the chamberlain and constable of France. 
After plundering the rich town, he struck at Rouen, but could not reach it, for the French had broken all the bridges of the lower Seine. Then Edward turned his invasion into a hazardous adventure. He sent his fleet home to England, loaded with the spoils of Normandy, and marched on Paris, keeping south of the Seine. This was a dangerous move, for the French had now begun to assemble a great force, and since Edward had not fortified for himself any post in Normandy, he had no place of refuge or friendly territory nearer than Guienne or Flanders onto which he could retire. Paris was far too strong to be taken by a sudden attack, and this was so self-evident that it seems probable that the English king was merely carrying out a chivalrous adventure when he marched to beard King Philip in his capital. No opposition of importance was met with on the way, but when the invaders drew near the southern gates of Paris, they heard that King Philip had collected 60,000 men or more at Saint-Denis, and had even been joined by part of his son's army from Guienne. The leisurely pace at which Edward had crossed Normandy had permitted his rival to concentrate all his forces. It was impossible to go on, and the English had to choose between a march on Bordeaux and one on Flanders. Nor was the latter alternative easy to take, for the Seine had first to be crossed, and all its bridges were broken. It was nevertheless this choice which Edward determined to make. He hastily moved on the broken bridge of Poissy, ten miles below Paris, and drove off its guards by the force of his archery. Then the army hastily repaired the ruined arches with planks and succeeded in crossing before King Philip and his host could draw up. Edward now hurried north with all speed, the French king followed as hastily a day's march in his rear. They kept their distance till the English vanguard reached the Somme. Here Edward found all the bridges broken and the militia of Picardy drawn up to oppose him on the further side. He made three attempts to cross at various points near Amiens, but was foiled in every one. Meanwhile the pursuers were in close contact with his rear, and it seemed that he might be caught between the French army and the peat bogs of the impassable Somme. Things were looking desperate when a peasant pointed out to the king a dangerous fort named Blanche d'Ac, the lowest on the river's course below Abbeville and near the sea. Here the stream was tidal, and at low water the fort was open for four hours at a time. The body of Picard levies were waiting on the further bank, and the passage was deep, but there was no other chance of saving the army, so the king bade his men-at-arms enter the water and force their way over. Meanwhile the archers kept up a long-range fire across the stream to gall the militia on the opposite bank. After hard fighting, the English horsemen drove off the Picard, and the whole army waded after them across the Somme. King Philip came up just in time to find the tide rising and the river once more impassable. Edward had thus gained a day's start of the pursuers and had the open road to Flanders before him. He marched on as far as the village of Crecy, and then, unexpectedly, bade his army halt and announced his intention of offering battle. He was now in his own rightful inheritance, the county of Ponthieu, and was ready to fight and to take what fortune God should send him. The fact was that he had found an admirable position in the front of Crecy, 
and that even if beaten he had a safe retreat on Flanders. The host was drawn up on the hillside just east of Crecy, its right flank covered by the brook of the Mai and by a thick forest, while its left rested on the orchards of the village of Wadicourt. There was a valley in front beyond which lay the rising ground over which the French army would appear. The English were arrayed in three corps, two in the front line, the third in reserve. The southern wing was put nominally under the charge of the young Edward, Prince of Wales, a lad of sixteen, now taking his first sight of war. He was placed under the care of the earls of Warwick and Oxford, two experienced soldiers. The northern or left wing was under the earls of Northampton and Arundel. The king himself stood behind at the top of the hill with the reserve corps. In each division the men-at-arms had sent their horses to the rear and stood on foot in a solid mass, after the manner of Dublin and Halidon. The archers formed wings thrown out on each side of the central clumps of spears and leaning forward on the flanks so as to partly encircle an enemy who should charge directly at the men-at-arms. King Philip had marched from Abbeville under the impression that the English were in full flight for Flanders. Hence it was no small surprise to him to find them drawn up in line of battle on the hill by Crecy. His army was strung out over many miles of road, and the rear was only just setting out from Abbeville when the van was already almost in contact with the English. At first he came to the wise resolve to defer the battle till the next day, but the fiery barons in the front refused to halt and pushed in so close to the hostile position that fighting became inevitable. Forced by his vassals' want of discipline to attack before he had intended, Philip drew up his army as best he could. His front line was formed by six thousand crossbowmen, mainly Genoese mercenaries, who were bidden to drive back the English archers. Behind them rode a great mass of men-at-arms under the counts of Alençon and Flanders. The other contingents were gradually coming up and taking ground to the rear in successive lines. The Genoese marched up to the foot of the English slope and began to let fly. But the moment that they started the engagement, the archers took one step forward, drew the arrows back to the ear, and shot so fast and so thick that it seemed as if it were snowing. Their aim was accurate, and their discharge five or six times as rapid as that of the clumsy crossbow, which required to be wound up after every discharge. In a few minutes the Genoese were hopelessly routed and fled back toward their own main body. The Count of Alençon, who had no experience of the English archery, cursed them for cowards, and in his rage bade his men-at-arms ride over them and make straight for the enemy's front. This act was as mad as it was cruel. The horsemen trod down many of the wretched infantry, but were hampered by the crowd and could only push through in small broken parties toward the English. When they came in range they soon found that they had erred in despising their enemy. The archers shot down well-nigh everyone who came near them. Only a very few of the French got to close quarters and charged in on the dismounted knights of the Prince of Wales and the Earl of Northampton. Alençon and Louis of Flanders were both slain. Angered but not cowed by this unfortunate opening of the battle, King Philip, 
launched each of his corps as it reached the field against the English line. All had the same fate as the first comers. But the French noblesse was brave and obstinate, and their fruitless attacks did not cease till nightfall. Only once did a large body succeed in closing with the Prince of Wales' corps. King Edward was asked for succor, but refused to bid the reserve charge, observing that the boy must win his spurs. His action was justified, for the French were beaten off without it being necessary to engage the rear division. At dusk, the French fell into hopeless disorder and melted away from the field. Edward would not allow any pursuit, lest his little army might get broken up in the dark. Next morning, the extent of the victory could be gauged. There lay dead in front of the English line at least 10,000 men, of whom no less than 1,552 were counts, barons, and knights. The most notable among the dead was John, King of Bohemia, an ally of France, who, though he was almost blind, had insisted on leading a charge at the head of the knights of his household. He and they were found all dead together in front of the Prince of Wales's standard. The Duke of Lorraine and ten counts were slain, with half the baronage of northern France. Such was the result of the rash attempt of the French chivalry to ride down the dismounted men-at-arms of King Edward, flanked by the deadly archery of the English yeomanry. So complete was the victory that Edward could now choose his own course of action without fear of being further molested. He resolved to besiege and take Calais, the great French port which faces Dover across the narrow strait. If taken, it would give England an open door into France. Moreover, the English had an old grudge against its seamen, who were noted privateers and pirates, and had often ravaged Kent and Sussex. While Edward lay before Calais, news reached him of a second victory, almost as important as that which he had himself won. King David of Scotland had taken advantage of the absence of the English host to invade the northern counties. The Scots, we are told, thought that no one was left in England save millers and mass priests, and hoped to find the border ill-guarded. They forced their way nearly as far as Durham till they were met at Neville's Cross by the militia of the northern counties, headed by the Lords Percy and Neville, and by Edward Balliol, their former sovereign, who had now practically relapsed into the condition of an English baron. Here King David suffered a sanguinary defeat. Once more the archers were too much for the Scottish pikemen, and the tragedy of Halidon Hill was repeated October 17th, 1346. David himself was taken prisoner with many of his nobles and was retained in captivity for ten years. He was not unkindly treated, but one of his companions, John Earl of Menteith, a former partisan of Balliol who had betrayed his master and was specially obnoxious to the English, was beheaded as a traitor, a piece of illogical and unnecessary cruelty since half the Scottish nobility might have fallen under the same accusation. After Crecy, King Edward's arms were successful in all directions. The Earl of Derby, now become Earl of Lancaster by his father's death, thrust the French out of Aquitaine. Sir Thomas Dagworth, placed in command in Brittany, routed the partisans of Charles of Blois at Roche-Darion, and in the north the siege of Calais went steadily on. 
King Philip collected an army and came up to endeavor to raise the leaguer, but with the memory of Crecy before him he dared not attack the English lines, and after his departure the place was starved out and yielded on terms. August 3, 1347. Footnote. The story that Edward intended to hang seven of the Burgesses who offered themselves as victims in behalf of the whole town, and that they were only spared at Queen Philippa's intercession, seems an invention. But the leaders surrendered themselves to the king's mercy, and came out barefoot and with halters round their necks as a sign that they were wholly in his hands to spare or slay, hence probably the story. Edward made them hostages, but treated them kindly. End footnote. King Edward permitted those of the burghers who would do him homage to retain their houses, but drove out the large majority who preferred to abide by their French allegiance. Their place was filled up by the immigration of several thousand English merchants and seafaring folk, and Calais became for two hundred years a thoroughly English town. On one occasion it even sent members to the Parliament at Westminster, for the future, all the inroads of the English into northern France were sent out from this invaluable open door. The town also developed into a great centre for trade with Flanders. Repeated attempts of the French to recover it by treachery or by open force all came to nothing. A short time after the fall of Calais, another of the numerous truces which interrupted the course of the Hundred Years' War was concluded, leaving each party to hold what it was actually in possession of at the moment. It would probably have been short but for a great calamity which fell on both England and France in the following year. In 1347, a deadly pestilence, coming from India and the Euphrates Valley, where malignant disorders are always rife, appeared at Constantinople. In the next year it swept over Italy and reached the west, by the summer of 1348 it was raging both in England and France. The Black Death, as this plague was generally named, seems to have been a kind of eruptive typhoid fever, highly contagious and breaking forth with boils upon the body. In the crowded, insanitary towns of medieval Europe, among a people utterly ignorant of the simplest laws of health, it spread like wildfire but the countryside suffered almost as much as the cities. Many districts did not recover for centuries from its effects. The whole Norse population of Greenland died off, so that the very existence of that ancient colony was forgotten. Many depopulated parishes in Sweden relapsed into the forest from which they had been hewn out. The Grand Duke of Moscow and 60,000 of his subjects were cut off. Florence lost 100,000 inhabitants in eight months. England suffered as much as other regions for a whole year, August 1348 through September 1349, she was laboring under the scourge. The coming of the winter cold brought no relief, and it was noted that rainy weather, which was abnormally prevalent that year, seemed to be particularly favorable to the spread of the plague. The king's daughter Joanna died of it on the eve of a betrothal to Don Pedro of Castile, a fortunate release for her as he was a cruel and reckless prince and actually murdered the French lady, Blanche of Bourbon, whom he wedded in her stead. Two archbishops of Canterbury fell victims to it, John de Ufford 
and the scholastic philosopher Thomas Bradwardine, whom men called the Doctor Profundus. The clergy, indeed, owing to their duties at the deathbed, suffered even more than other classes. Some two-thirds of the livings of the Diocese of Norwich changed hands during the twelve-month, as is shown by the bishop's register. In Yorkshire, the mortality, though somewhat lower, yet carried off more than a half of the parish priests. Grass grew in the marketplace of Bristol. London buried some 50,000 corpses in the new cemetery, of 13 acres in extent, which was consecrated on ground belonging to the hospital of St. Bartholomew in Spitalfields. The cattle strayed through the corn and found none to drive them away. Ships were driven ashore on the coast of the North Sea with all their crews lying dead on board. On the whole, it is probable that there was not much exaggeration in the contemporary estimate which calculated that England lost a full half of her population during the terrible thirteen months during which the Black Death raged. All description of local records, such as manor rolls and the like, seem to bear out the statement. The social and political results of the Black Death were naturally tremendous and widespread. It seems to have generated selfish indifference and demoralization, and its most prominent consequence was the outbreak of a crisis in the relations of the landowning and the laboring classes. So large a number of the agricultural class had been swept away that the lords of the manors could not get their lands tilled, for the survivors demanded wages that seemed extortionate to their employers. The latter fell back on their ancient right to demand the unpaid labor of their vilain during a certain number of days in each year. This practice had been dropping into disuse for many generations, for the landowners had been commuting forced labor for money, and so allowing their peasants to become rent-paying tenants rather than serfs. The attempt to enforce this half-obsolete practice led to numberless disputes. Many vilains absconded, others formed themselves into secret leagues to resist the Lord's claims. It was to no purpose that Parliament, in the interest of the landholders, passed statutes enabling the justices of the peace to fix the rate of wages in each district, and providing for the punishment of the laborer who should ask, or the employer who should offer, more than this maximum. The laws of political economy could not be evaded, and selfish legislation only embittered but could not settle the dispute. This unwise statute of laborers, 1352, was one of the main causes of the violent seditions among the agricultural classes which were to break out, Thirty years later. End of chapter three. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.